0: Well, welcome to this latest episode for APSA Insights. I'm Bruce Whitfield, and with me today is Arthur Goldstock, Managing Director at Worldwide Works, talking about how telecommunications companies are changing agriculture and healthcare for the better. And I think, Arthur, you'll know this better than most. There's the gap between the actual and what happens in the present, and between what we dream about. Telecommunications companies will be able to deliver in the future. Where are we now and where could we go to?
1: Right now, we're at a point where we have some great case studies. We have some great technology. And in fact, South Africa is amongst the forerunners in the world in certain respects of agri-tech, especially in using drones for crop mapping and the like. But the flip side of that coin is that we only have those few case studies. In general, we find that the technology is not being embraced across the sector. So, yes, some green shoots, one might say, but uh, not general growth in the area.
0: So is the tech is ahead of the human ability or the human desire or the human capacity to utilize it.
1: Exactly that. So we have this incredible company in Cape Town called Aerobotics which started out as a company using drone technology and infrared scanning equipment, as well as fairly advanced artificial intelligence analysis software. And that seems to be a standard set of tools that are being used for crop mapping around uh, the world. But they then took it a few levels further to become one of the world leaders in the sector Until about three or four years ago, you found that most of this technology being used across the African continent was being brought in from the United States. And American companies were using Africa almost as a test bed for this technology. Now we have a situation where... The technology and the innovation is being built locally and it's happening locally. So it is being geared towards very specific needs of the environment in which they operate as opposed to being imported and overlaid over this environment.
0: And it is amazing. I mean, you look at the sort of stuff that they're doing and you look at the ability of farmers, for example, to be monitoring hundreds of hectares of grassland, of pasture, of crops, of orchards whatever it might be. um, Even keep an eye on livestock, I suppose, from the air using these technologies. And suddenly the ability to farm at scale and in very remote and often inaccessible areas becomes considerably more viable to do.
1: Exactly. And then you combine that with what you can do on the ground itself, which uh, then multiplies the impact and the benefit. So, for example, MTM uses something called RFID, uh, radio frequency identification, which is a bit like barcodes that you get in grocery stores. And in fact, you can use this exact same technology to track. Groceries as well, and certain global wholesalers are utilising this technology. But it's being applied to cattle tracking. So MTN has a solution called the Aotozo Information Tracking Solution, which lets farmers track health metrics of their cattle. And then uh, Vodacom has got something called My Farm Web, which uses the Internet of Things, and you could say RFID is part of the Internet of Things. But just to elaborate slightly on Internet of Things or IoT, it involves not just collecting information from sensors that are being planted, perhaps on cattle or on the farm itself, but also aggregating that data in the cloud through uh, cloud computing services and uh, other techniques, and then analyzing that data in the cloud, feeding it back down to the farmer or to the farming operation to make decisions based on the data being collected from these senses. So you look at those kind of combinations and you realize that if mobile operators are playing in this space, it's becoming almost a commoditized technology.
0: Now, when I think of farming and I think of agriculture and I think of clouds, the only clouds that most farmers I know care about are the ones that make it rain. However, I do accept that farmers are becoming far more technologically able than they were ever before. But just how far ahead is the tech ahead of the farm?
1: It depends on the farmers themselves and it depends on who their technology providers are. So there are now examples of startups that are gearing themselves towards the small farmer. And it's very much a question of whether that farmer wants to be part of the solution. So one of my favorite examples is a South African startup called Omniolytics which is using digital sensors that are linked to IBM's cloud computing service and its artificial intelligence platform, Watson. IBM Watson, you may know, is one of the forerunners of using artificial intelligence and processing massive amounts of data. But what Omniolytics has shown is that it can use this incredible power and bring it down to the level of a tiny farmer. So why it's important in poultry in particular is because the industry has got massive challenges that they haven't been able to address on a, an individual basis, on a farm-by-farm farm basis. So, for example, the quality of feeds, the origin of feeds, the high cost of uh, feed and the like. And then um, avian flu breaking out again and again and various other diseases also being brought to bear. So you had a situation where the poultry industry in South Africa was valued as something like 46 billion Rand two years ago, which is massive. It makes up about 16% of all agricultural production in this country. But when you look at the impact of something like avian flu, the 2018 outbreak cost the economy a billion Rand, and you don't realize the extent of the damage to the economy that something as simple as that can make and that most people are not aware of. But the farmers are incredibly keenly aware of that. So what Omnialytics did is they put together IoT technologies similar to what Vodacom are using, and then they collect data on environmental conditions of these poultry facilities, but also on the activities and processes that management uses. They then collate that in the cloud. They use IBM Watson to analyze it, and then they feed back information, advice, and data data that helps the farmers not just improve their efficiency, but also the components of those outputs.
0: You know, what's so interesting here, Arthur, is that um, I've been aware of Watson for a very, very long time. And Watson first became incredibly famous, if memory serves, um, when Watson was used on the American game show Jeopardy, which was a quiz program. And it was a case of can the computer outperform the humans? And I think Watson beat the humans in Jeopardy, which was a landmark occurrence. But that happened about 30 years ago, probably, maybe 25 years ago, that Watson's been around. And we're still using Watson. And Watson um, remains sort of the standard bearer, if you like, for for this kind of technology.
1: Yes, in many ways. Uh, IBM was also famous for Deep Blue, the computer that first beat a world chess champion. And uh, subsequent uh, to that, supposedly the most difficult game in the world strategically, which is called uh, Go, was also solved by a computer. And that's all fairly recent. So it took a long time for the technology to really go from examples of what it can do into uh, the mainstream and now running ahead. So I guess it's an analogy to what is happening in agritech as well, that we start off with these one of examples, these momentary triumphs, you might say, that you then start building on and suddenly it becomes exponential in terms of the growth of solutions and uh, use cases. So I suspect that's what we're going to see in agritech as well. Uh, everything up to now has been, you might say, the IBM Watson playing chess um, example and trying to convince people that it works but five years from now, it's something that everyone will be using because it'd be stupid not to use something that gives you not just a competitive advantage, but the ability to improve your processes, your systems, your outputs, and ultimately your profits. And the profit motive, I think, is what's going to drive um, incredible growth, exponential growth in this sector.
0: Because you you don't have to look too far watching some sort of medical drama on your favorite TV channel to realize that this sort of tech is what is being dreamed about in medical dramas, where you've got the specialist sitting in New York City, working as an ophthalmologist, either leading or guiding or even operating on using 5G into the future, Uh, a patient sitting in Lagos, Lisbon, or Lanceria. For sure. And
1: one of the facts that is has held it back in terms of uh, medical use and particularly live operations and the like is the latency between issuing an instruction and the operation actually happening, so to speak. And um, what we'll find with 5G is that that latency will vanish or at least be reduced dramatically. So 5G will be a huge boon in the world of medicine. In agri-tech, it wasn't as necessary, but I think it will make a big difference. It will help a lot, but you'll be able to see these technologies being brought to bear across all sectors once 5G comes into play as well. So my personal favourite is really the automotive sector. A lot of the uses of artificial intelligence in self-driving vehicles are still premature because we don't have the speeds, we still have too much latency, and you don't want to issue an instruction from a computer to a car to stop because it realises it's going to collide with another car or human being and have a lag between the instruction and the car actually operating on that instruction. 5G removes that lag.
0: How often does the military lead this sort of stuff? Because the way you're talking about cars and the lag, um, we've seen in recent years, and it's almost becoming like watching a a dreadful reality TV show where we see drone footage being operated somewhere from a desert bunker in the United States um, carrying out an attack on a convoy 10,000 miles away. That seems fairly instantaneous. And I wonder whether or not that technology becomes more useful to us in the world of agriculture and medicine into the future.
1: The advantage that the military has is that it's also able to bring to bear the very uh, latest uh, satellite technology and the full resources of the satellite surveillance networks, which they then combine with their drone technology to make these targeted attacks. But uh, if you ever watch the Homeland series, you'll know of the drone attack on a venue where a most wanted man supposedly was attending a wedding and attending to a public relations disaster because it wasn't quite what it seemed. And that's the the, uh, shortcoming of using this kind of technology in the military. As you know, military intelligence is an oxymoron. So (laughs) (laughs) the ability to use the technology in the kind of targeted fashion that the military boasts of is actually rather limited. It's limited by the quality of the intelligence being collected. And a lot of intelligence that is collected by the military is also predicated on political considerations. And that reduces the effectiveness of uh, the technology. You'll find less of that in the world of um, automotive technology, agritech, and health technology as well. So I think military is hamstrung by uh, the politicians, but the rest of us don't
0: have to be. Um, And what about the space race? I mean, so often the space race, so much of what we take for granted today is as a result of work that was being done as Neil Armstrong set foot on the moon, because the sort of technological advances we see in society are massively expensive exercises that require an extraordinary investment in what is then a new technology, which then becomes the basis of progress into the future.
1: It's fascinating to see how the tables have turned to a large extent. In the past, the space race kind of drove the technology race. Now, Silicon Valley is enabling the aeronautical organizations to improve their systems and their processes in order to enhance their ability to explore space. But also, where the most significant advances tend to happen from the private sector, the whole idea of space tourists coming routine for individuals to go into space is being pioneered by individuals like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and Mr. Branson with his Virgin Galactic operation. And we've seen that the visions of people are like these do eventually turn into to reality, as opposed to the science fiction ideas that come out of the likes of uh, NASA tend often to remain uh, pure science fiction. So I think with individuals with the likes of Silicon Valley being part of that uh, action, all being involved, we're no longer depending on the military and the uh, aeronautics industry to drive innovation. It's other way around.
0: And I also wonder just how useful this perpetual cycle of innovation is, considering just how slow most of us are as human beings to adapt, are to adapt to the sort of technological revolution that's happening around us each and every single Day, Arthur. Um, You know, by the time farmers catch up to today's technologies, technology would have moved on to the next 20 years, two or three years from now.
1: Which you think will be slow, but if you think of the technology that we have in our hands and on our wrists that we very quickly take for granted. And you compare it to where we were five years ago, you suddenly realize the extent to which individuals are being caught up in this pace of innovation. So what you have on your smartphone today feels like something that you've been using for the past decade. But bear in mind, we didn't have such a thing as, as a smartphone before 2007, when the iPhone arrived. The idea of the app didn't even arrive with the iPhone. It only came after. It came a year or so after the iPhone was first released. And now our world revolves around apps. We take them for granted. Same with um, online shopping. If you think of ordering groceries now, for example, if you live in an urban area and you have a credit card, you expect your groceries to be delivered in an hour. Two years ago, that was unthinkable in this country. If you got next day delivery without paying an arm and a leg for it, uh, you were impressed. Now you're expecting 60 minute delivery and it's become standard across most major retailers. And in fact, the retailers that don't provide 60 minute uh, delivery, I can name names, but uh, they (laughs) are seen as being behind the times. The major retailers are all right up there uh, with our expectations that are being led by the space of innovation.
0: Uh, it's massively encouraging then um, that technology is more rapidly being adopted and adapted to our needs and becoming increasingly simple to interact with. Your iPhone example is a very, very good one. Um, and we're becoming better at utilizing it. And I, I wonder whether or not you know it's always going to be ahead of us or if automation is the next big thing, this dreadful fear of the so-called fourth industrial revolution destroying the world as we know it. So often in technology, we kind of assume it moves a lot more quickly than it does. And and by the time it moves, we kind of think it's been there forever, don't we?
1: Exactly that. And the real bottom line is that we are now looking at constant incremental innovation rather than leaps of technology and leaps of innovation. And that's why we are being slowly seduced into the next big thing. You could say suckered into the next big thing in Mm -hmm. the case of helping the giants of cloud computing to increase their footprint, their subscriber base, their advertising and the like. We are actually all part of their product and they're becoming these multi-trillion dollar giants, which was unthinkable just three or four years ago.
0: As far as Africa and deliver using technology that's focused on 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 medical solutions as far as delivering african medical solutions into the future Is the improvement as exponential as we've come to expect it to be or are things slowing down a bit?
1: It's not anywhere near as as exponential as we've been led to expect it could be. I probably get a press release every second day about how health technology and digital health is advancing so rapidly in Africa. But uh, you speak to the average person in the street and they're certainly not benefiting from it or even being exposed to it. And even you, you and I are pleasantly surprised when we come across the use of this kind of technology. Uh, my GP, for example, is very anti-technology uh, and doesn't want to use the latest advances in telehealth uh, for Uh, example. And while you have that kind of cynicism and resistance, then you have to expect that on the ground for the ordinary uh, individual in the mass market, it's still a long way away.
0: So that's an old dogs, new tricks sort of story. But as we see new generations come through, and they're coming through faster and faster every year, um, surely that the, the, the concept of the digital native sort of almost subsumes what exists right now at an increasingly rapid rate into the future. Well, fortunately,
1: the situation with the smartphone and with the migration from feature phones to smartphones means that we are all starting to feel like digital natives. And the idea that it's only the youth now who are uh, digitally comfortable is slowly vanishing. One of the most fascinating findings of our recent online retail in South Africa study, was what we call the normalization of online retail across age groups. So when we did the study three years ago, online retail was very much predicated by how old you were and partly on disposable income. But there was a curve that showed that your likelihood of shopping online went up slightly with disposable income as you entered your 20s and into your early 30s, and then it dropped off dramatically by age. Now, when we did the study we found quite dramatically that, in fact, age was no longer a key factor until you reached around the age of 65. So when you reach retirement age, you became less likely to shop online. And that, again, became a factor, probably, of disposable income.
0: Arthur Goldstock, thank you very, very much for joining us on Absa Insights. Arthur Goldstock is the Managing Director at Worldwide Works.